I'm Andrew O'Hagan, host of a new podcast from the London Review of Books. It's about the bloodiest and most controversial event of the Falklands War, the sinking of the General Belgrano. Margaret Thatcher was accused of a war crime. The truth would only emerge in the pages of a private diary. This is the Belgrano Diary. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, I'm Thomas Jones, host of the LRB podcast. This year on our Close Readings podcast, there are two bonus series. One is with Irina Dumitrescu and Mary Wellesley, exploring medieval humour. The other, with Seamus Perry and Mark Ford, is on political poems. You can listen to Seamus and Mark's first episode on Andrew Marvell's Horatian Ode upon Cromwell's return from Ireland right here, or go straight over to the LRB Close Readings podcast, where you'll be able to listen to the full series as it's released through the year, along with Irina and Mary's full series and free extracts from all our subscriber-only series. Just search for LRB Close Readings in your podcast app or find links in the description. Welcome to this new LRB Close Readings series about political poems. We have a new format for our new series. In these conversations, we'll be taking each time a single poem, one which has been understood and admired, or perhaps criticised, for its politics, or for its particular engagement with contemporary political history. And as ever, we shall be enlightened and informed by pieces to be found in the rich gathering of essays and reviews that make up the archive of the London Review of Books. My name is Seamus Perry, and I teach English literature at Balliol College in Oxford, and I'm talking uh, to Mark Ford, poet, critic, and professor of English at University College London. And the poem we've chosen for our f- first conversation in this series is Andrew Marvell's Horatian Ode, which is, as Frank Commode says in a piece he contributes to the London Review of Books, uh, a text that it's possible to think the greatest political poem in the language, Mark. So what? we're starting at the top. Yes, um, and it, it's political in, in all senses of the word, isn't it? I mean, the full title, An Horatian Ode Upon Cromwell's Return from Ireland, gives us the, the, the moment in history. Uh, it was written in um, summer, probably June of 1650, And King Charles had been executed in January of the previous year, 1649. And Cromwell, uh, later in 1649, had gone to Ireland and uh, subdued the Irish. Um, By subdued, I mean massacred, really disastrously uh, violent campaign. Um, And the poem actually talks about the kind of his battles against the Irish and somewhat implausibly has the Irish um, admiring Cromwell and commending him for his victory over them. And Cromwell returns in May 30th, I think it is, from Ireland to England and is, within a couple of years, has become a sort of de- the de facto king. So the kind of turbulence which Marvell lived through, in, he was 29 when he wrote it, and uh, over the next 20 years, it, the turbulence is, is just unbelievable. And this poem is a political poem, but it, it, it's interesting in that it doesn't make much um, impact on the politics of the time because it was unpublished. It may have been circulated in manuscript to a few choice readers, but there, there's no certainty that it was. And when Marvell's collected poems or his posthumous volumes came out in 1681, it was the time of the Restoration and the publisher <laughs> excised it at the last moment. So it's only in a couple of copies does it exist in the 1681. So it's not until 1776, the kind of the year of the um, uh, American uh, War of Independence, that this poem 
is published properly. So it doesn't intervene in the politics of the time, but it registers them with a kind of subtlety and a delicacy and an intriguing ambiguity, which makes it both about politics, but also political, because no one can agree the extent to which Marvell is celebrating the arrival of Cromwell or uh, deploring the death of Charles, or both at the same time. Yes. Uh, so that's the thing I suppose we'll probably concentrate on, isn't it? Which is that the poem has a has a radical kind of ambiguity about it, which obviously Commode admired and liked. Uh, we, we should say maybe one or two things uh, additionally about the context to it. Um, Cromwell's um, campaign in Ireland was brutal. Um, the person that Marvell is welcoming back is someone who, who led an extraordinarily bloody campaign in Ireland, which effectively had the ideology of a crusade uh, because it was not only against um, Irish people who were being rebellious against a new regime, it was also against Catholics who, you know, um, Cromwell thought were heretics. So it had that whole kind of crusading kind of uh, uh, violence about it. And I suppose the other thing that we ought to we ought to mention is that what's going to happen next is Cromwell's going to invade Scotland. Yes. <laughs> uh, it's a crisis poem. I mean, it is an absolute yeah. crisis poem in, uh, in every way. Probably the greatest crisis that, that, that the English uh, has suffered in terms of its own internal conflicts, uh, undoubtedly uh, the case. And in terms of the religious aspect, it, it is an intriguing paradox, sort of slightly gestured towards in the poem, that Cromwell, who, who's no, the notion of Cromwell as being divinely elected, as somehow being God's chosen instrument to affect this uh, uh, change and to abolish what had been sort of centuries of, of monarchy as they thought forever was also someone who Marvell worried might not allow the amount of religious freedom to which Marvell was committed. And I think there's one piece in which um, Blair Warden is quoted as saying the language of the poem is almost bipolar, mm. <laughs> that it can be read. Uh, on, on two levels at once, and it's impossible to adjudicate between the two. But I think that's probably the point of the language, and that Marvell is recovering a sense of privacy and individual subjectivity and a sense of autonomy for the reader of the poem and for himself in the process of writing the poem as these two really kind of determined power blocks, the kind of the, the ex the royalists who were still adhering to the royalist cause and um, the uh, Cromwell's uh, new interregnum Puritan vision of of England couldn't can kind of collide together or coexist together, and the poem allows us to kind of juggle between them in a way which is analogous to the I think the, the way we respond to news so much these days polit- political news. You think on the one hand this, on the other hand that, yes. and this poem superbly captures that sense of ambivalence and uncertainty. But at least it does so in a manner that allows us to feel we're having our own thoughts and we're not being invaded uh, by ideologies which we feel resistant to. Yes. Um, what, what Blair Wharton um, says in his LRB piece are uh, bitterly divided feelings about the whole paradox of uh, a Cromwellian kingship, uh, which Wharton thinks Marvell's spots on the horizon. Um, and perhaps that's something that we might come back to um, later on in our, in our conversation. One last detail, I suppose, um, about the uh, the context of the poem. It's very difficult to date lots and lots of Marvell's poems. Um, the date of this one uh, seems less problematic because of, of, of the occasion that prompts it. And by this time, Marvell is, is absolutely part of the household of um, Fairfax, who had been uh, head of the Republican army. 
But when the Scottish invasion happens, he steps down because he doesn't think the Scottish invasion is justified any more than he thinks that the um, trial and execution of the king was quite the right thing to do. And so Cromwell then steps in. And the important thing about Fairfax, from our point of view, is that Marvell is part of the Fairfax household. He's the tutor to Fairfax's daughter. Um, and Fairfax is an extraordinarily interesting figure, isn't he? Because he's part of the New Model Army. He's the leader of it until Cromwell takes over. But he's also part of the um, group of MPs that welcome Charles II back into England when the Restoration happens in 1660. So if you wanted someone who absolutely kind of encapsulated or embodied all the complexities and the contradictions of mid-17th century English politics. Fairfax is the man, and Marvell is his laureate. And, of course, the poems he writes about Appleton House are poems of rural retreat, often. that They have a kind of pastoral element to them. They're saturated in politics, of course, but that they are set in kind of rural, idyllic retreats. And the first lines of this poem say this is exactly what the uh, Marvell must now give up, that the, the crisis of the time means the forward youth that would appear must now forsake his muses dear, nor in the shadows sing his numbers languishing. It is time to leave the books in dust and oil the unused armour's rust, removing from the wall the corslet of the hall. So he's, I mean, he's paradoxically writing a poem about saying you shouldn't write poems anymore. Absolutely. Um, uh, And you should be a man of action. And of course, it's difficult for someone of Marvell's um, unbelievably sophisticated cast of mind to commit to any particular action, um, that he is um, a, a brilliantly indecisive poet in the ways in which someone like T.S. Eliot commended in 1921. And you can see that Marvell in some ways is a, a prefigurer of proof rock in his ability to see all sides of a topic and not to decide between them. But he is saying that this forward youth who would appear, i.e. make some kind of name for himself, and Marvell did become a, a politician who was MP for Hull for, 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 for many decades, um, though he was notoriously loath to speak. He didn't enjoy public speaking. So the sense in which he was a public man and writing a public poem, but his own sense of his privacy. And I think the poem in some ways does embody his own private ways of making sense of what's happening at the time is dramatised in these opening lines that he should come forward and not uh, uh, languishing. As as I was reading that languishing has a sort of royalist connotations that the old, the old, and, and this is where the Horatian bit is also got a royalist connotations, the idea of this a rural retreat, which one would enjoy in Horatian mode under a just ruler, uh, a king of some kind. These are the things that must be abandoned and you must become a warrior of some kind and take down your armour and um, somehow contribute to the cause. Yes, take down the armour that's been decorating your hallway in a kind of um, um, kind of curatorial way and, and put it on and use it in, in, in some more active way. Yes, it's interesting, those, those two opening stanzas that you've just quoted, because there is clearly an analogy being put forward by Mar- Marvell between the forward youth that he's describing there and Cromwell, because the third verse begins, So restless Cromwell could not cease in the inglorious arts of peace. And this introduces something which I'm sure we'll be talking about throughout our conversation about this poem, which is the way that a lot of the key words that are apparently epithets of praise actually also have an odd kind of ambiguity which implies something pejorative or morally dubious about them. And the second word of the poem already contains that, doesn't it? Forward. I mean, forward could mean urgent and ambitious, 
But it could equally mean something a little bit more morally critical, couldn't it? It could mean pushy, could mean overly ambitious. Um, and that kind of uh, kind of double speak, as, what as as Blair Worthen says, and you quoted a moment ago, this whole kind of bipolarity about some of the the key epithets in in this in this poem that's established from the very beginning, isn't it? Yes, and is embodied in the poem's form as well, which has these kind of um, octosyllabic. Uh, couplets, uh, eight-syllable couplets, followed by a six-syllable couplet. This seesawing is going on all the time. On the one hand, this; on the other hand, that. And a word like inglorious in the inglorious arts of peace. Well, you know, you're bound to think about: Are the arts of peace inglorious? Yes. Obviously, they don't lead to military glory. No. But is that the only kind of glory? One value? So every word has a kind of buzzer underneath it, saying that something. Uh, um, odd is going on or, or that this can be taken different ways and I think this applies to all the Roman allusions that go on as well yeah. so it's not yeah. only Horatian Ode but Caesar and Hannibal are invoked and um, uh, Cromwell is compared to Hannibal and, and that's a fairly divisive thing to do because Hannibal didn't conquer <laughs> he didn't conquer the Romans so uh, I think Marvell on the one hand seems to be celebrating Cromwell's possible invasion of Europe or saying that this this re- revolution which has happened in England can then be exported to Italy and to France but whether or not Marvell actually thinks that's a good thing is something we just can't adjudicate on I think. Yes perhaps um, before moving on through the poem we should say a word about Horace and the Horatian um, which clearly Marvell is flagging in his title and Horace seems to be a kind of parallel for Marvell doesn't he because uh, Horace was a republican uh, but comes round to accepting and indeed celebrating the rule of Augustus as an emperor and that is very roughly the trajectory of Marvell's own life, isn't it? So as a very young man, as an undergraduate at Cambridge, he publishes a poem which is a version of one of Horace's odes that celebrates Charles I as our Caesar. And in this poem, Horatian ode that we're talking about today, he seems to be revisiting that and then in this very complicated, emotionally rather nuanced way that we're, and ideologically nuanced way that we're talking about, seems to be reworking that that Latin parallel, Mm -hmm. that Roman parallel. Yes, and there's another um, uh, Italian writer who's pertinent, that's Machiavelli, and Marvell was attacked as a Machiavellian-style figure. And Machiavelli talked about the new prince, the Novus Princeps, and Cromwell would be this kind of new prince. And Machiavelli was was a sort of, again, a, a double-sided figure. And I suppose in terms of the historical or political view of this poem, and I think this is something that may come up in the course, to what extent it somehow is going along with the inevitable force of history. Yeah. That there's a, this very, very, very plangent account, uh, a moving account of Charles's death, but is Marvell saying that the forces of history have somehow outdated Charles I and that he is a kind of... Um, an aesthete and um, a gracious person, but is somehow doomed by the forces of history which are moving in a different direction. And those forces are determined by some kind of divine power. But is that divine power, uh, and Cromwell is the vehicle or or the means for that divine power to fulfil its mission, Um, but that that is also a a kind of fairly um, distressing series of events unfold from that. Let's um, look at the way that Cromwell is represented in, in his first appearances in the poem. He's a kind of superman, isn't he? He's, he's someone who has a, a kind of power which is 
partly the force of nature, but partly even more than that. He's kind of like a sort of supernatural, isn't he? Um, Through adventurous war urged his active star, which is, you know, one of these wonderful um, ambiguities that we've mentioned already. Does that mean that his active star, that's to say his destiny, urges him through adventurous war? Or is it Cromwell that's doing the urging? In which case it turns him into this extraordinary figure that actually dictates or determines the the course of providence. Um, And then later, the next stanza, like the three forked lightning, first breaking the clouds where it was nursed, did thorough his own side his fiery way divide. This is associating um, Cromwell with a kind of satanic imagery, isn't it, of fieriness and forcefulness. Yes, and it reminds one of Satan in Paradise Lost. Um, Milton and Marvell were close friends and Marvell introduced um, uh, Paradise Lost. So I think Cromwell is a figure whom he to some extent in the 1850s did come to support and he was he was did have a position as as kind of a secretary with, within the Cromwell's government but a lot of violence is associated with Cromwell as you said the Irish campaign was particularly uh, violent and um uh, this is also the forces of imperialism beginning to expand to expand and and um and the connection with the Roman Empire, he compares him and Caesar's head at last did through his laurels blast. That seems to be associating... Um, is Caesar's head there is Charles, isn't it? That's Charles, yes, so, that's right. Um, There's a little contest in the poem about who is most like Caesar. Yeah. Is, it, is it Charles or is it Cromwell? And they're like different aspects of Caesar, aren't they? I mean, this is the Caesar who's assassinated. Yes. Um, and and th- this is the inevitability aspect of the poem. Tis madness to resist or blame the force of angry heaven's flame. Yes. Um, so you can, yes. on one level, you can read that as saying this is the inevitable processes of historical progress. On the other hand, you can see this almost in inverted commas, <laughs> that uh, there's no way that somebody who could, could possibly resist this because they'll get in trouble if they do. <laughs> Absolutely. Yes, exactly. So there is an appeal to historical inevitability, isn't there, as a, as a 20th century person in the Marxist tradition might say. Or someone in the 17th century, like, like Milton, might appeal to necessity. Um, but that is, as, as Milton says, the tyrant's plea. Yes. Necessity, the tyrant's plea. So there's a very, very murky kind of ambiguous moral um, world that these different terms and these different references are are inhabiting, isn't there? Cromwell is described as someone who from his private gardens, where he lived reserved and austere, as if his highest plot to plant the bergamot, which I gather was a particularly delicious kind of pear, <laughs> could by industrious valour climb to ruin the great work of time. And that's fascinating, isn't it, within the context of Marvell's own poetry? Because the private garden is, of course, exactly what he celebrates himself in one of his greatest poems, The Garden, which is probably written within a, a, few, a few months or, or, or a few years of, of, of the Horatian Ode. And the opening of The Garden, How vainly men themselves amaze to win the palm, the oak, or bays. You know, this kind of worldly ambition is vain, it's pointless, and yet that's exactly what he's saying 
Cromwell is so good for having turned his back on the, and it, the world and it, of the garden. Yes, but and it seems, um, and this is, I guess, to show our listeners that we're up on kind of historicist readings of the poem, that Bergamot was actually associated with royalism. It was I did a, not know that. It's, uh, yes, I'm, uh, <laughs> it was considered to be the pair of kings. Ah. So when Cromwell is, is, is leaving his Bergamot, there, again, there may be some kind of irony in which a royalist fruit is being implanted in Cromwell's garden, which may suggest his own regal ambitions. Um, so the, the kind of multivalence of the ironies, which um, which kind of um, make every, every single uh, phrase of this poem so kind of calculating and intriguing and difficult to parse, doesn't impede its great forward uh, drive. It's, mm. it's a terrific mm. narrative poem, uh, as well as an extremely sophisticated poem about the politics of language and the politics of the particular crisis which it is uh, describing. But we do get this kind of multifaceted portrait of Cromwell. Uh, and we get this, I mean, one of the most uh, moving passages, I think, in all literature is the death of um, King of Charles, mm. um, who's presented as on a stage. And it's interesting to think that how often the deaths, executions of kings have been represented on the Elizabethan and Jacobean stages uh, in the uh, you know, decades preceding the Civil War. That was what nearly all tragedies ended up with, the death of a king. But um, uh, Charles is presented as embracing his actor his death as, as a kind of as a superbly composed and moving and dignified actor he's chased to the isle of wight uh and carisbrook is is and this is seen as cromwell's m- own kind of devious plot has yes. kind of trapped Charles uh, into his web or net, I think is the word that the poem uses. He wove a net of such a scope that Charles himself might chase to Carisbrook's narrow case. Uh, and then Charles is, is brought to London uh, and executed, that thence the royal actor born, the tragic scaffold might adorn while round the armoured bands did clap their bloody hands. He nothing common did or mean upon that memorable scene, but with his keener eye the axe's edge did try, nor called the gods with vulgar spite to vindicate his helpless right, but bowed his comely head down as upon a bed. Yes. So, I mean, the admiration for... Um, Cromwell in the poem is, as as we've been saying, is extraordinarily nuanced and edged. But it would seem to me, at least, uh, thinking about the stanzas you've just read out there, that the more humanly scaled feelings in the poem, I mean, not the not the feelings about the Superman, but the more humanly scaled feelings are absolutely on Charles's side. This could be a, a little royalist poem embedded within what is attempting to be a Republican poem. Absolutely. I suppose the, the, the counter-argument would be that by giving Charles his due, one somehow moves on from royalism, mm, mm. that somehow this is the equivalent to the ways in which, say, someone like Cooper laments the last of the Mohicans. Mm. They're doomed to die. Give them a, 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 glo- a glowing and glorious, tragic end, and then let's move on with the Republican future. I suppose that would be the Republican argument that you get in uh, the work of critics such as David Norbrook, who, mm. who writes a... Um, a, a brilliant piece in the LRB about Marvell, who's a, a wonderfully astute explicator of Marvell, but does see him as in this poem committing himself to republicanism. It's for him a kind of transition poem uh, from royalism to republicanism, or lukewarm royalism to, to lukewarm republicanism. Yes. 
Uh, he nothing common did or mean is is interesting, isn't it? So it's, it's one of these poems that is so attentive to the to the different spins of individual words, isn't it? And then a little bit later on, we hear that Cromwell has to the common feet presented Ireland as a kind of a, a kind of you know gift or a kind of act of um, generosity. Uh, so so the fact that Charles didn't do something common mm-hmm. might, in its own ambivalent way, be a sign that. He wasn't quite on the right side because being in tune with the common actually was a sign that you were properly Republican, I suppose. Yes, uh, it is an aristocrat versus kind of bourgeois poem. And and, uh, this is what's happening in this in this particular age. I love the sort of pun that you get, but with his keener eye did the axe's edge did try, which is somewhere where you can see the kind of metaphysical aspects of kind of Marvell's um, readings in Dunn and Herbert and so on, that that kind of witty conceit. Uh, But he's doing it for a real person at a real Mm. time, in a real Mm. place. Um, And there's something absolutely magnificent uh, about, about it, in, in the, I think this must have caught Eliot's eye, who who writes a wonderful essay on Marvell in 1921, and who who in Little Gidding celebrates um, the royalist cause or laments the defeat of the royalist cause. Um, and Charles, so Charles becomes in, in this in this these lines a kind of martyr, the kind of martyr of of the, who would live on through the centuries. Yes, and also keen, keener than whom? I mean, presumably keener than everyone else who's there. I mean, he's he's he knows what's going on. He knows the significance of what's happening. Oh, I here. thought it was keener than the axe's edge. <laughs> okay. So it was that's another ambiguity you might keener say. Keener than the, even the axe who's about to chop his head off is his eye. Um, and there's this peculiar conceit that follows, derived from from a, 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 an episode in Livy, whereby the head found when the Romans are building the capital first time signifies a good fortune. They find a head. But it's not a bleeding head in, in Livy. That's no, transposed by Marvell. Is, is Marvell's in, invention, absolutely. So, so that's the brilliant set piece execution scene. Um, in the middle, where he imagines, again, by another ambiguity, the the people with bloody hands around the scaffold clapping. I think as a historical detail, they were clapping to drown out what the king was trying to say as his as his death oration. But by the by the you know, the grace of the theatrical metaphors that that Marvel is using, uh, it turns into applause for what the the king is doing, uh, which is a lovely, wonderful touch. But then, um, as we get uh, into the um, the, la- the later stanzas, we, we turn to very recent politics, don't we? Not the execution of Charles, but much more recent politics, which is the Irish and what Cromwell has done there. And now the Irish are ashamed to see themselves in one year tamed. So much one man can do that does both act and know. So he's developing a kind of great man theory of politics, isn't he here? This is like, almost like a sort of proto-Thomas Carlyle mm-hmm. hero worship. Kind of, and indeed Cromwell was one of Carlyle's heroes. That that kind of notion of, of how politics works and where it comes from. It doesn't come from ideas. It doesn't come from, you know, um, political settlements of, of a consensual or, or agreed kind. It comes from a great man doing something. Yes, and this is the historical consciousness of the poem in action, because Charles had invaded um, Ireland himself in the 1630s, disastrously. Yes. <laughs> so um, Cromwell <laughs> gets the job done. We'll one, one of the few things that Charles and Parliament agree about <laughs> is that you should invade <laughs> Ireland. <laughs> um, Cromwell gets the job done, but to get the job done does require brutality. Um, and I think 
one of the strengths of it as a political poem is its refusal to gloss the ghastliness of what's going on. Mm. That um, it may be making use of the, the genre of the panegyric, uh, which is celebrating someone, but it, it inverts it in a very kind of clever and subversive way. And one, one wondered what Cromwell would have made of it. Because um, Marvell did write some uh, subsequent panegyrics for Cromwell, which went down quite well, as I understand it. And they seem completely unambivalent. Yes. They seem absolutely, you know, just praising Stalin. Really. Uh, so the fact that this was unpublished and in some ways is unpublishable, one might imagine, that it would not not satisfy any of the parties involved, uh, is, is in some ways an aspect of what poetry can do. Poetry can create this reserved plot, to use the, 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 the poem's own terms, in which one's own doubts, dilemmas, emotions, anxieties, contradictions can be acted out or, or written out in a way which uh, is, I wouldn't say uplifting exactly, but in a sense does justice to the complexity of the situation, resisting propaganda, although it makes use of many propaganda terms. And Clever historicist critics have picked up all the phrases from pamphlets which Marvell has incorporated into the poem mm. to, and re-embedded it in, it in its kind of historical moment and in the, the, the writing of the moment, which was mainly the writing of ephemeral pamphlets. Um, and Marvell himself wrote quite a few of them. Yes, and and the sort of animal violence, the almost sort of Ted Hughes-like violence involved here is perfectly captured, isn't it, in the extended metaphor of the falcon. So when the falcon high falls heavy from the sky, she, this is a brilliant little princess, isn't it, having killed, no more to search, but on the next green bough to perch, where when he first does lure, the falconer has her sure. And the falconer there is... I don't know, the people the or the House of yes, Commons yes, yes. or something like yes. that. And it has, has somehow managed to... But does she? To, I mean, yeah. Exactly, <laughs> to, bring, to bring back the, the, uh, the, the falcon who has killed. And then another classical, uh, and you've, you've mentioned this already, a Caesar, he, ere long to Gaul. So, of course, Caesar is famous for conquering Gaul and contributing it to the Roman Empire, to Italy and Hannibal. And as you say, that is a very odd... Illusion, because uh, it's true that Hannibal successfully invades Italy and occupies the southern parts of Italy for quite a long time. But in the end, he's driven out and he's defeated. Yes, and, and Caesar, of course, also is an ambivalent yeah. figure because it's true he conquers Gaul, but then he comes back to Rome, he creates a civil war, and he turns himself into a permanent despot, a, a, dic a dictator. <laughs> yeah, uh, and a dictator. that's the, the fear that Cromwell will become that. And yeah. it's worth pointing out that Horace fought at Philippi. And then goes over to Augustus. So yeah. the sense of, of the flip flopping in the in in uh, in the in the title is is also within the illusions which which Marvell sort of brilliantly yeah. configures into this. Uh, and the the ending I find sort of dis distressing in its relentless sense of how historical inevitability uh, involves violence. Am I reading yeah. that right? Do you think? I think so. I mean, I, I suppose the the countervoice is is the odd. Um, quality of, of pity or sympathy that emerges in just a couple of the stanzas towards the end for the Scots who are going to get this next or the Picts yes. as he calls them the Picts no shelter now shall find within his party coloured mind happy if in the tufted brake the English hunter him mistake nor lay his hounds in near the Caledonian deer so he's imagining the Scots who haven't been invaded yet 
and Fairfax has refused to invade them uh, as the head of the army because he doesn't think that, that England has been provoked enough to do so. Cromwell has absolutely no compunction about that. He's going to get in there and beat them all up as much as he can. And Marvell is imagining them as 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 creatures hiding, you know, hiding from a pack of hounds. And the English hunter is also very, very striking because I think for anyone of of, of Marvell's readership, the hunter as a kind of mythological figure would have brought up the idea of Nimrod mm-hmm. from the from the Old Testament, mm-hmm. who was a great leader, but becomes a terrible tyrant. So it's another. It's like those, that Caesar mm-hmm. illusion, isn't it? It's it's an illusion which is at once glorifying, but also has a kind of undercurrent of of real moral reservation. Yes, um, and the sense that. Um, Cromwell becomes a bit like uh, Talus in Spencer's poem, this kind of, you know, uh, iron fist. Uh, I think it's really brilliantly caught in the line which has the longest word in the poem in it. Um, But thou, the wars and fortune's son, march indefatigably on. Never has indefatigably, uh, in this very short line, seemed so kind of relentless and um, in some ways deplorable, impossible to escape. Uh, that there is some remorseless, relentless force coming on. And for the last effect, still keep thy sword erect. That uh, it's, uh, it's in dispute whether he means it as a kind of sword as a cross or the sword as that to smite his enemies. But certainly it becomes smiting in the last stanza. Besides, the force it has to fright the spirits of the shady night, the same arts that did gain a power must it maintain. I think there is an allusion in the in the Spirits of the Shady Night to Virgil in Book 6, mm-hmm. um, down in the underworld, um, although it's also possibly a kind of Christian notion of that the, the cross will, sh- will fright the spirits uh, away. But that last couplet seems to me to sum up a political savvy poem, poetry, <laughs> through the ages, that there is, it, it's unillusioned. The same arts that did gain a power must it maintain that there is no utopian afterlife, mm. that you don't win these battles and afterwards everyone uh, is is happily living in their rural retreats, that there's a sense of anti-utopianism, uh, you could say, um, in, in the poem. And a kind of, in terms of its relation to English history, almost a nostalgia for what has been lost and the, the brave new world. Well, it's here, it's inevitable, but one has to steal one's nerves to cope with it. Yeah, it's that the arts of war and the arts of peace are actually the same arts, isn't yeah. it? It's it's a real kind of real politic kind yes. of realisation like that. Uh, and, and then so arts, arts become propaganda almost. And as um, Eliot says in the great essay that you referred to earlier, you have a wonderful lyric grace in Marvell, but underneath it there's something really tough. Yes. There's something which is absolutely alive to um, the, you know, the, the unforgiving truths of what politics is actually like. Absolutely. Thank you, Mark. Um, next time, we'll be discussing uh, another poem, which you might claim as the greatest political poem in the language, perhaps, or the second greatest, which is W.H. Auden's 1937 poem about the Spanish Civil War called Spain. We're taking a lot of the poems in this series from the Faber book of Political Verse, which was edited by Tom Paulin, out of print now, but you may be able to find a second-hand copy. 
It has a very stimulating introduction by Tom and received an equally stimulating review by David Norbrook in the LRB, which provoked an extensive series of letters. And we may refer to some of that debate during the series. So it's worth taking a look at. Uh, We'll put a link to that in the description. You'll be able to listen to the rest of Seamus and Mark's series on the LRB's Close Readings podcast throughout this year, along with extracts from all our Close Reading subscriber series and Mary Wellesley and Irina Dumitrescu's new series on medieval humour. Just search for LRB Close Readings in your podcast app or find links in the description.